Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. We have, in this room, made monumental decisions. You all have made monumental decisions. We've declared wars, passed civil rights acts, ensured that no one in this country is a slave. Every American has the right to vote, unless you live in a territory. At this time, some of these decisions are even controversial. But history has shown that they define us as a country and as a people. That is Congresswoman Stacey E. Plaskett pleading the prosecution's case as impeachment manager last month at the second U.S. Senate impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. Her eloquence made her a standout star. Her emotional presentation in front of her one-time law professor, Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin, grabbed America's attention. She unleashed formerly unseen video of the January 6th riot, personal references, nods to hip-hop lyrics, and a clear case, the kind one would expect from a former Bronx assistant district attorney. She became the face and voice of the Democratic Party, not to mention her chic blue cape, which instantly became a superhero meme on social media. We reached out as we want to hear what the insurrection means to her and how the nation can move forward. Welcome to Equal Time, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett. Of course. I wanted to ask, uh, though January 6th seems a long time ago, it certainly wasn't, especially if you were there. So I first wanted to ask, how are you and how are you carrying the experience of that day and evening with you? Um, I guess I'm continually asking myself how I am and how my staff are. Um, you know, everyone is peeling back layers of this as you go along. Um, particularly being an impeachment manager meant that so quickly after January 6th, you could throw yourself into something other than yourself and be completely engrossed in it and didn't have to think about what your personal thoughts were or how you felt. So I may be a little arrested in time in terms of uh, thinking about how I'm doing. Now the Senate hearings are going on and they're talking about the riots and investigating security. And you also see a certain amount of rewriting and deflecting already going on, including by some of those who were witnesses to the chaos. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? That is the perpetuation of the original lie, which was that the election was stolen, that the election was not a legitimate election. And these are individuals who have a script uh, that's already been written for them. They've got to, for, you know, the propaganda machine has to continue. They've got to propagate the law, the lie and that they're going to continue doing that. Looking back at that uh, impeachment, uh, those the trial, you, of course, you said folks are calling on you. You made quite an impression with your expert presentation, uh, those uh, videos that you introduced that were shocking. And of course, not to be too superficial, the, the blue cape and all the super person uh, memes, but I wanted to ask how you are going to use this increased recognition to advance your priorities? Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that I have, um, well, just to back up, I mean, before I was 
announced as an impeachment manager uh, when the House Democrats had organized, I was named to the uh, House Ways and Means Committee. And that, of course, was to me the epitome of my rise in as a member of Congress because there has never ever been a member from the territories on Ways and Means. Um, Folklore has it that in the early 70s, House leadership got together and agreed that no one from the territories would ever sit on Ways and Means or any exclusive committee, definitely not Ways and Means, that that was too beyond their reach. And so to be the first person from a territory named on Ways and Means and only the fourth Black woman on the Ways and Means Committee. It's been um, Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, who, God rest her soul, was the first Black woman on Ways and Means. And then more recently, uh, Terry Sewell, Gwen Moore, and now myself. So that has been something that has been uh, a work in progress for me. So to be on that committee was you know, I was I was straight uh, for the next, uh, you know, couple of cycles with digging into economic policy and tax incentives and how to support disenfranchised, forgotten communities through tax law, through um, those programs that reside within Ways and Means. Um, Mary, just thinking about uh, in this last COVID relief package, Almost 70% of the components of that bill came out of Ways and Means. So this is an incredibly important committee to grow economies, to uh, lessen the wealth gap between African-Americans and people of color, poor people, and those of wealth. Can you talk a little bit more about your journey from Brooklyn to St. Croix and to con- and to Congress representing the territories which you've been such a spokesperson for. And, and, and if it's any harder to be a Black person, a Black woman on the Hill. Earl, you, now you're trying to go on for uh, about two hours, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not young uh, either. So uh, it's, been a long, it's been a long, you know, journey to get to where I am. Um, my, my parents moved to New York from the Virgin Islands uh, in the 1950s because uh, there was not many jobs and not many opportunities on the island at that time. And older siblings were sent to New York to find work and send money back home. And so I lived in a house where I regularly saw my parents writing, you know, money orders to pay for other siblings school fees, uh, my uncle, my mother's, my father's youngest brother slept on our couch while he was finishing his medical residency uh, in New York. Uh, and, you know, I have aunts that paid for my bar study uh, class, you know, after I graduated from law school that didn't want me to just take the bar on my own, but wanted me to go to one of those study courses. And that was their law school graduation gift for me. So I come from a family where 
the greatest thing we can give each other is education and opportunities. And so I was the kid that we lived in the projects in Bushwick. And then my parents had the chance to move to the Michelama project, you know, buildings and co-ops that were being created in New York. Uh, And I didn't go to school in the neighborhood. I went to a Quaker school, downtown Brooklyn, because my parents felt that that was a great place for me to learn and meet other people and have different experiences and different opportunities. Uh, You know, I always tell the story about how I took piano lessons from a Czechoslovakian woman uh, from the age of seven until I was in high school. And in the course of taking piano lessons, my mother learned that she and her husband spoke German. And so my mother made me take German lessons because she believed that the German language would not necessarily be a great language to learn, but how Germans construct words would be a great way to teach me precision and detail. Um, So, you know, I, I feel like I'm my family's special project. (laughs) <laughs> oh wow but you 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 they put so much into you and then you take that to congress to the hill yeah. where you say you're the first of if you're often in rooms where you're the only mm-hmm. and i'm sure there are opportunities there but there are challenges could you kind of talk about those a little bit well you know explaining all of that about my childhood is kind of how I still live, right? Where I'm the first or the only, um, never mind code switching, it's called life switching. You know, you go from uh, a room in Congress where people are talking about um, tax law or talking about greater things for the American people and having to remind them that there are a group of islands uh, that have 4 million people, right? When you include Puerto Rico and the Pacific Islands that are still basically colonies and that they are often forgotten when these legislations are being written. That I represent a group of islands that when they were purchased, my grandfather and people, his, his compatriots came to Washington and demanded that they be put into the draft because they wanted the responsibility along with the privilege of being American citizens. And it's my responsibility to constantly raise that awareness. One of the best advice that I got when I came to Washington was from Steny Hoyer. And he told me that Stacy. The Republicans are in um, power right now. We're in the minority. And so there's not going to be a lot of opportunity for you, aside from debating on the floor, to vote. When the Democrats are in power, um, not only are you going to vote in committee, but we afford you the ability to vote when when the House rises to committee on the whole. And so you're voting on amendments. But when the Republicans are here, there's not a lot of opportunity for you to vote. But being on the House floor, this is where all the deals are made. This is where the relationships are made. This is where the negotiation should happen. And you should try to come to the floor as much as possible. 
Members from the territories don't come to the floor and oftentimes they're forgotten and they don't have those relationships. Well, I really took that to heart and I go down to the floor whenever members vote. And it has not only allowed me to create relationships with people that I wouldn't necessarily have who are not in my committees or not part of any, you know, special interest caucus groups that I'm in. I regularly sit with the guys that sit in the back middle corner, the blue dogs, you know, that's, I I have a great relationship with some of those guys or with the California group or, you know, the Hispanic caucus tends to congregate in a particular area as well as the black caucus or some of my moderate Republican friends going over to sit with them. But because I don't vote on every bill, it allows me, and I, so I don't have some of the angst that other members have, it really allows me to observe members more closely than maybe other members do. And I've been able to point out things to leadership that they may not have been aware of. So I know which member is not going to go vote first because he or she is waiting to see another member who is part of their delegation and votes like them goes before them. And that's going to influence what that member does in their voting. Yeah, well, it's certainly a challenge because I know you talk, you have been talking a lot about those relationships that cross lines and you yourself worked in the Bush administration. You work with uh, Republican Senator Rob Portman. I know he's still somewhat of a mentor, mm-hmm. but now it's, 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 now you have the continued insistence by many in the GOP that the election was stolen, that Trump is the true, pre- true president and uh, what's needed now are efforts to further restrict the vote. Uh, we see, of course, the the Voting Rights Act now. The House has moved that forward uh, with, I don't know, not great <laughs> chances in the Senate. Um, so uh, that's a lot of challenge, even for someone who is a person about relationships. Yeah. So what's the what's the path ahead for the party, for your party? as you want to expand the franchise and put so uh, many of the items of your uh, agenda forward? Well, uh, you know, first you say elections do have consequences, right? And having the majority doesn't hurt. Um, Being in control of both the House and the Senate and the White House um, affords us an ability to through the reconciliation process, at least get two major pieces of legislation done um, that will affect American lives immediately. I think there are other ways. I'm in leadership in the new Democratic coalition, and I know that the new Dems, which are the moderate Democrats, many of whom are in purple districts, want to find middle ground, want to find areas that are Um, Like all members of Congress, I hope, looking for supporting those bread and butter issues that their constituents care about on a daily basis. You know, my constituents want to know how are they going to get their kids back in school because they have to work and they're concerned about some of them having children by themselves learning at home or not being able to their children's to learn at home because they don't have reliable broadband service in their homes. Um, They want to make a living wage. They want to be able to uh, have affordable, be able to afford a home. We know that the greatest 
way to um, generational wealth is through home ownership. We know that in particular, as an example, the GI Bill after World War II specifically regulated Black people out of home ownership, which then kept Black people out of being able to have the kind of leverage for their children to go to college that white Americans was. And that gap just grows larger and larger. So there are things that I think, I hope, are commonalities with us as members of Congress that we can work on together. It's frustrating to have people that you once called as friends who may not speak the big lie or perpetuate some of the more egregious language, but also don't stand up to it. That's disappointing um, and makes me question their character as, as adults and as Americans. That makes it harder to work with them. Mm-hmm. Have you talked with them? No, I, I haven't. I've actually not had that conversation. Um, it'll happen though. I, yeah. I'm not one to shy away from uncomfortable conversations, um, mm-hmm. whether it's about the Caribbean or race or um, character. So uh, yeah. I'm waiting for the right time and I will bring it up um, and call them on it as I think, you know, so often black women do. Yeah, I can I can say an amen there. <laughs> um, you brought up about parents uh, and their struggles, and I know that you yourself are a parent, and mm-hmm. you do have school aged children, mm-hmm. uh, and you've struggled as well. I've noticed some uh, of your family coming in and out, uh, some of your presentations, yeah, and it's yeah. been a challenging year in COVID nineteen restrictions. So, has this affected how you view policy uh, and what's needed and what's missing? I think it's reinforced what I already understood. I'm I'm just thinking about, um, you know, the wealth gap uh, and how it's affected families. I mean, I have wealthy friends who I was shocked when I understood that they created personal pods for their children, where three families pool their money together to have a tutor that the kids meet with on a daily basis as they have their computers, their Chromebooks up, going through homework and the class day with them, redirecting them so that they as parents can continue doing their work from home, right? And then on the other spectrum, I have family and friends, some of my own constituents where their children don't, didn't have a laptop, or if the school gave them a laptop, they don't have reliable broadband. And so their kids are sitting in a car or have to, you know, walk to the McDonald's um, and use the free Wi-Fi outside from there. Or the, they're left, the kids are left alone and just given strict rules about what they can and can't do or say to the teacher because the parent has to leave the house and continue working, um, whether it's legal or not legal to do so. But that's the only way they're going to be able to make ends meet. And 
I worry about what does that mean for that generation 10 years from now and 20 years from now? What will be the disparity in intellect and what they've missed? Um, my own husband uh, is from the Virgin Islands and was finishing school when Hurricane Hugo um, hit the territory. And at that time in 1989, there were many, many months when people did not have electricity and almost a year when people didn't go to school. So in my immediate family, the kids who were still in school were split up among family members that lived in the Mm -hmm. States so that they could finish the school year. And he didn't have that opportunity and was there in the Virgin Islands. And periodically, I see gaps in his knowledge base because he missed that year mm. of school and didn't, wasn't able to get that back. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine, you know, Virgin Island students miss the year after 2017 in September after the Hurricane Zerma and Maria. And now many of them have missed time from COVID. That's a lot of learning. Can't get that back. I noticed you mentioned broadband, and I know you're co-chair of the Infrastructure Task Force, just putting yourself into that issue, which really, that uh, affects so many, too, as well, that you of your constituents. Well, you know, not only does broadband ex- um, affect education, but it affects business. I really believe that uh, broadband is, in fact, for the 21st century, the same thing that the railroads were uh, in the 1800s, and that the government made a commitment to ensure that this country would be connected, right? After the Civil War and Reconstruction, we internalized this need to connect. And so we have the Erie Canal, we have the Brooklyn Bridge that was built, we have um, the steamships and railroads, that connected our country in a way that allowed business and economy to boom throughout the United States. It created a framework for the Industrial Revolution to have um, a catalyst and a vehicle to move what we created and allowed us to continue to be innovators. Broadband does the same thing in many respects. And up to now, we have not allowed broadband to penetrate areas in rural areas, as well as even underserved urban areas. And so we are missing out on the intellect and the innovation of those individuals that live in rural areas, as well as those individuals that are in urban areas. Yeah. That's true. That's so true. Um, I'm in an urban area and I see differences in different parts of the city. Mm. I. I ask a question, I know we're, I don't want to take too much of your time, but sure. I ask all of my guests, uh, which is what question have I not asked you that I should have? Because it's something that you care deeply about and you, you want folks to know the answer. Well, you know, I, I also sit on the Agriculture Committee um, and I chair the Biotechnology, Horticulture and Research committee on there. And really in the last Congress, we worked quite a bit on how small farmers um, can be more resilient 
and how the federal government can support those farmers. Uh, the new chair of the Agriculture Committee has talked quite a bit, uh, David Scott has talked quite a bit about um, you know, support for minority farmers, support for migrant workers in farming, supporting small farmers who end up not getting uh, disproportionately left out of federal funding and grants for farming, and how that affects urban communities as well, with our food deserts, with food insecurity. Uh, COVID, during the pandemic, we recognize that there are 25 million Americans with food insecurity now, and 14 million children who will be hungry uh, because of this pandemic. And so food insecurity and how to get farm to table and not just among, you know, not just among hipsters, <laughs> yeah. but among those who need it most is something that I'm concerned with. And then, um, you know, personally, I'm always concerned with hip hop. That's, that's a, <laughs> that's a, passion and love of mine that many people don't know about, you know, well, we, in the impeachment. You slipped some lyrics down in the right, impeachment. Right. So lay, lay some on us now. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not a freestyler. I'm not a freestyler. <laughs> I don't do freestyle very well. But, um, you know, I just, I, um, a couple, was it a week ago, got to have a discussion with Spike Lee. Um, and I've recently been reading a new book that's come out on Malcolm X that was Les Payne's quintessential um, work, something that he had been working on for almost 30 years, The Dead Are Arising, about the life of Malcolm X. And he started the book in 1990 when hip-hop was really engaged in very conscious, um, in-your-face uh, rap about um, what was happening in cities, what was happening in the African-American community. You know, I know rap music well before that. I mean, the first time I heard um, a rap song was 1976. But I think that that time period was so important and I'm hoping that our young people will have a renaissance of that. Um, I'm, you know, hoping that what happened this past summer with Black Lives Matter would allow rap artists to take a second look about what they are rapping about and maybe use their artistry and their lyrics and their music and their talent to support the community. I mean, I have to tell you, the greatest part about the impeachment, um, when I threw in those lines uh, that no one on the impeachment trial knew that I was going to do, that was just my <laughs> personal little ode um, that I, I put in there, was having the rap artist reach out to me. You yeah. know, I had uh, Killer Mike and some of the others, uh, you know, direct message me on Twitter and I know I was when when we were in the conference room uh, the next day in the impeachment trial, people didn't know I was talking about. I was like, "Oh snap! Look, look, look. <laughs> well, 
That's so, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Now it's interesting. You mentioned that book, Less Pain, when I was still a student in school and I had an internship in the summer at Newsday, he was a mentor. So all of those connections. And then as I became a journalist, we went on to be. Uh, he was very exacting um, and very instructive. And, and as I became a professional journalist, we were both in the Trotter group of Black columnists. So he became a colleague. So the, it, these connections are interesting. So what are you listening to now in hip hop? I gotta, can't let you go with that. You know, I listen to a lot of old school. Uh-huh. Um, my youngest son, who is 19, is really into Afrobeats. Oh, okay. And so he's been hipping me to a lot of London um, centered artists. And um, that's really been very interesting to listen mm-hmm. to. But I've been I've been going back and listening to a lot of Jay-Z. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, to the eighth one of the world, the flow of the century. Oh, it's timeless. Ho! Oh. Um, yeah, the classics, the classics. (laughs) Yeah. I'm also particularly interested in voting rights since my three eldest siblings were involved in the civil rights movement. Ah. One of my oldest brothers was arrested twice. It's a big age gap. And, um, so I'm really following this bill on voting rights and these efforts in the States, uh, to restrict voting and the Supreme Court case. We'll have to have you down in the Virgin Islands where you can speak with, um, some of our elders and scholars about the disenfranchisement of the territories from voting rights. And, well, yeah. you you mentioned that. I mean, every time you get on the floor, you talk about and you make a remark about and they don't have a, a voice. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on on that um, issue? And, you know, what's going to happen with that? So many people who really you're there, but you don't really have a vote in a sense. Right, right. You know, I think that we it's it's the hidden it's the hidden colonies, you know, the American empire has a bunch of hidden colonies that they just call um, territories until the territories were made up of um, predominantly brown people. There was always a belief that eventually a territory would become a state. I mean, that was in the Northwest Ordinance. And it wasn't until the insular cases that it became codified that these offshore territories were in fact inhabited, uh, as the Supreme Court says, by alien races who can't understand Anglo-Saxon principles of law, that they should in perpetuity be territories until such time as we believe that they can understand our laws enough to have the responsibility of having full voting rights. The irony of that, of the gall of the Supreme Court justice writing that, who also, by the way, wrote Plessy v. Ferguson, the same (sighs) individual, is that, damn it, the Virgin Islands gave you your law because Virgin Islanders pool their money together. People, merchants on St. Croix pooled their money together so that Alexander Hamilton could come to New York and come to the States and be a drafter of the Constitution. Um, under which all of our laws are stated. Now, of course, mind you, they were able to put in a clause in there about um, citizenship and birth citizenship, which was specifically geared to keep him from ever being president. 
of the United States because they felt that, you know, they would never have this Creole with this accent be a president. Um, but until we come to that realization and deal with it, that we'll continue to have these issues. Just, you know, personally to say, when you spoke about your family, I'm the youngest of five of similar, you know, father who worked many, many jobs. And and just to see that you were there raising your voice mm-hmm. and uh, it, it just means, it, it, it means so much to me that you would, would join the show and the listeners and that you are doing this work at a time where, you know, every day, of course, I'm, this is what I cover, uh-huh. but it, I know it's not easy. Well, thank um, you. And, thank you. And Anything you for a sister. A Anything for a sister. We have to help each other. Well, thank you so much uh, for appearing on Equal Time, Congresswoman Plaskett. Of course. Thank you. So what's keeping me up at night? The week's hearings on the dangers of domestic terrorism, rising especially on the right, with militia groups and white supremacist movements. FBI Director Christopher Wray issued information and a warning at a Senate hearing. But some in Congress seem more interested in deflecting than protecting. All Americans have reason to be a little afraid, though many Republicans instead seem to fear a full accounting of the truth of January 6th and a plan for the next time, if, or should I say when, there is a next time. It's what I'm writing about in my Roll Call column this week. Check it out. Now, one equal time listener, a professor of religious studies, shared that when she looks out at the 20-something-year-olds she teaches in university, in person or on Zoom, she can't help wondering, what kind of world are we leaving them? For now, she has no answers. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.